We're going to go to the uh, StreamYard uh, uh, hotline here, and we're going to talk with uh, our friend Jennifer Bryson, who is in the green room there, but she's not now. She's actually uh, <laughs> she's actually in the um, uh, in, in the StreamYard link. For those of you that don't know, I met Jennifer what four years ago. Uh, uh, my friend Bill McCon uh, BKB introduced me to her. He had uh, had a conversation with her when uh, she had gone on this uh, this path, which was trying to figure out what to do with the rest of her adult life after having spent most of it in the corporate world and becoming very, very successful, but not successful in those things that as a return, or as a Catholic returning to the faith told her that she should be successful at, which was mothering, child rearing, and what have you here. But time had passed her by. So she went on, an, on a quest to, to do something else with her life. And that's where we'll talk about her today. Uh, Jennifer, are you still in Austria? Yes, I am. Okay, so you made it from here, you, uh, you went around and you discerned or you tried to discern with a couple of orders. I want you to kind of catch our listeners up, especially the, I, I encourage our, our female listeners, uh, husbands and wives, to get their daughters to listen to and watch this show today. Uh, it's kind of a primer on when mom tells you that your vocation is in the home, <laughs> this is what happens if you ignore her. You go, oh, come on, this is 2023. Just give, give people that don't know you, Jennifer, a little, a little biography of where you came from and what you did. Sure. I had a very secular upbringing in the San Francisco Bay Area um, at a time when no one even talked about feminism because by then it was in San, the San Francisco area, it was already in the water and in the air, just taken for granted. Uh, later on, while I was in graduate school, I came into the Catholic Church as a convert, um, and I continued in graduate school and my professional life because as a child, in you know my the way I was raised was really to be sort of just like a career machine, um, and that was meaning in life for a young girl where I was raised to be successful in career and to outdo the boys. But over the years, my Catholic faith kept working on me, and I began to discover what the Catholic Church actually teaches about marriage um, and actually teaches about vocation, these beautiful, rich, fabulous teachings. And so about probably about eight years ago or so, um, I would often have young women in their 20s just out of college come to me for career advice because I was often for work in mostly male environments, so they'd come talk to me. And they wanted to know, what's the next degree I should get? How do I get the next job? And I realized nobody, and I mean nobody, was telling them, you are designed to marry and have children right now. Not in 10 years, not in 20 years. And so I decided when they would come to me for career advice that that's what I would tell them. And that getting married and being a mother, if that's what they're called to do, is a fabulous, beautiful thing. And they'd never heard this before. And so then I wrote up the career advice I give to young women. Um, it's in an article at Crisis Magazine called, I think, um, Secrets Feminists Don't Want You to Know. <laughs> and that's how you and I connected. Your friend Bill sent you that article. 
So uh, now, after the article uh, came out, after you and I talked about uh, talked, you you one of the things you were go- you were going to try to do was to see if there was an order of sisters, a religious order that would take you in, and you were and you were discovering that age actually matters in entry into even into a religious vocation as well as it does, you know, biologically, right? Oh, absolutely. Mm. Um, all the orders I kept looking at said, well, we would welcome, you know, women to visit up to age 30, up to age 35. You know, by this point, I'm in my late 40s, eating 50. Um, and I, I, I really think it's a challenge to the Catholic Church in America, where because of our societal breakdown, we have so many older single Catholics, um, and we don't fit the traditional molds, um, but we're still around. So that means God wants something from me. Um, and so it, it's been a time of tremendous learning and exploration. Um, and right now I'm translating works by a fabulous Catholic author from German into English. So at least I have found a way to integrate my faith with my work life. And I love this work very much. So, and you're uh, now, you're, you're in Austria, right? Yes, I've been living here for two years um, and the works I'm translating are by an author who wrote in German, um, which I had learned, a language I learned when I was a teenager, but it's been very helpful to live here to uh, keep working on my German. And I live next door to a big monastery, so it's also been good for my spiritual life. Uh, je parle français? Un peu. <laughs> uh, étudie, uh, uh, j'étudie le français. I also studied French, okay. but I don't think I would dare speak it, um, okay. at least not live. <laughs> well, I think German is harder. When you speak German, you have to, you have to yell. It sounds like they're yelling all the time. <laughs> no, no, there's there's no yelling, but uh, it's a language that's taken a lot of work. And so I'm really grateful to get to live here uh, while I'm also doing this translation work. Okay, let's talk about your interview uh, recently in the European Conservative. Um, uh, about uh, feminism and Marxism were spawned out of the same zeitgeist or zeitgeist. Um, uh, 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 this is an interview that you gave uh, with, to Jan Benz. And uh, she was asking you, uh, the, the interview starts off asking you about feminism and about what, what the goal of it was. Now, we've had the author Carrie Gress on this show a dozen ways to Sunday. So Carrie has talked a lot about this, and she has a new book out, uh, actually, that deals with this. Um, uh, but you came from, now she came through this academically. You didn't come at it academically. You actually learned it. So there's a vast difference between coming, at it, uh, coming to it academically as a scholar and learning about it than actually having been taught it, right? Well, Carrie Gress does terrific work. Um, I, I recommend her works to your viewers, um, and I appreciate also her latest book, End of Woman. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and in there, she's looking at the lives and personalities of the individuals um, from the earliest stages of feminism, where in my interview, I'm looking more at the intellectual history, which is just simply a counterpart to the same topic that she's looking at. So um, what do feminists want to do with society? This, this, is the, this is the part here where, uh, and they actually do want to do something with it, and, it, and it's not good. It's, it's, it's kind of like what, what, what we were talking about with, the, with what, what, what is the ultimate end goal? What is Biden trying to do here 
by this influx of immigrants. What policy objective does this possibly discharge? Well, in this instance, when we're talking about what the feminists want, uh, they do actually have something that they wish to accomplish. What is it? So it sounds deceptively simple, and also it sounds deceptively nice. Um, they want to, I mean, summarized, I would say feminists want to improve the lot of women by changing the structure of society. Um, and that that has been built in from the very start with the earliest thinkers we see in the late 1700s, early 1800s, such as Mary Wollstonecraft. Um, so there were two things in there, improve the lot of women by changing the structure of society. But um, the, it's the, the first part that lures people in, like on a fishing line, because it sounds so nice. Improve the lot of women. And you and I both know sin is real in the world. There are injustices. There are real life problems. But then it's the second part in their approach by changing the structure of society is where it gets really dangerous. Um, and here is why I mentioned, for example, it's related to the same sort of outlook of Marxism, that the agent of change in society are these big, huge, giant um, claims that, the, that somebody has like a special knowledge, sort mm -hmm. of like Gnostics, mm -hmm. and that what they need to do is just change the entire structure of society at a meta level, very high. Um, and that they claim that what the result is going to be so fantastic that they deserve to have all the power to make these huge changes. Um, and as we've seen in the 19th and surely in the 20th century with all the deaths and brutality from communism, mm. that approach is very dangerous. No, I had not heard before I read, read your piece. I didn't, uh, I'd never heard of Mary, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft. Or, or as you might read it, Wall Stonecraft. Uh, I wonder where they got the name. <laughs> she was an 18th century French woman. Uh, she wrote a, a, a book called A Vindication of the Rights of Woman. And it sounds like she may have been the proto-feminist. Right. And she, you're correct that she was in France, um, but she went down to France during the French Revolution. Mm. Thought it would be a good place to go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's uh, a tip from, off right there. <laughs> yeah, from England. Um, and Carrie Grest does a really good job in her book telling about the biography and very troubled life of Mary Wollstonecraft. So I would recommend uh, for viewers who want to learn more that chapter of Carrie Gress's book. And she really articulated some of the earliest ideas um, that then became what was called the women's movement and what today we would call part of a larger arc a feminism. Mm. And something that's a point in my interview um, is that the idea that feminism started out as a good thing in the so-called first wave in the 19th century, but that it got hijacked. And if we would only go back to quote unquote, true feminism mm. or early feminism, everything would be wonderful, I think is a grave error. I think that the response we need to have to feminism is a single syllable. This really useful word in English, Mike, okay. it's no. <laughs> or as uh, Austin, uh, as Dr. Evil would say, how about no? <laughs> 
No is a good word. Word to known, non. It, it, it sounds the same in almost ang every language. It sounds the same. Yet, no. How do you say no in German? Nein. Nein? See? <laughs> but it kind of sounds the same. Well, and, and, and it's because people don't want to, we don't want to offend anyone, you see? So we don't want to tell anyone no because it's rude. Isn't it more rude to let someone go down a path of literal self-destruction? I want to quote you to you. Trying to design or trying to redesign a complex ecosystem for the sake of just one creature is a bad idea, especially when one does not recognize that there is an ecosystem with many constituent parts. Uh, I would not say it's a bad idea. It's a dumb idea. But, it, it okay, so this is what they did. But they tried to redesign the entire ecosystem for women or for girls. Um, and the redesign couldn't contain it. Now it's exploded into a, a rejection of the, uh, the, uh, the unity, if you will, of male and female. And, and it's just confused the whole thing. So, yeah, it was a stupid idea. Yeah, and you think of an ecosystem, um, you know, um, you think of, for example, you know, the family, the cultural structures of society, the extended family. That's what I mean by an entire ecosystem. But instead, they tried to micromanage and go in and change everything just for one member, um, for women. And it's like pulling a thread out that has set everything out of balance. And men, children, families are all suffering today. And women, too. Okay, on the uh, Dude Maker uh, video line with Jennifer Bryson, who is a author and a commentator and a speaker, and uh, she is currently in Austria and is translating some works from uh, you're translated from German into English. Correct. Okay, uh, a single answer question: Is feminism responsible for today's gender ideology? Yes. Good. Why? Feminism, by insisting from the start that it could have a, a revolutionary change that would aim for a sort of, you know, utopian well-being, being, unhinged woman from the definition of what woman is. This, this is coming from a worldview in which woman is no longer a creature created by God. Okay. But rather, woman is something that can be made can be created if only we would change the circumstances. And thus, once you open up the possibility that woman can be made, woman becomes, instead of woman being something who is, um, you've opened Pandora's box. And this is a revolution that then j just keeps rolling and rolling and rolling. And what we're seeing in transgenderism today are yet more rolls down the road of this basic idea that becoming who one feels one should be or wants to be is in the hands of the human being. Incredible. Uh, okay. First came the normalization of single of single career women. Then the normalization of married women without intentionally uh, who intentionally without children. Those things are just taken for granted today. Oh, you know, she's bad. She's never been married, but you know, she, she does bingo and she's had a great life. Oh, really? As, as compared to what? 
there have been normalizations of things that are just absolutely uh, counter to nature. It is counter to nature for women to not rear, uh, to, to uh, bring forth and rear children. I, I mean, the, the entire arc of history. By the way, while you were talking, I'm thinking, what an irony that it's, it's not Peter's box, it's Pandora's box. And it's a woman. <laughs> it's a woman that yeah. opens the box up to destroy the world. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's Eve. It's Pandora. It comes back to the same thing. Um, but just for a moment here about this normalization, uh, this is. I don't think people can completely grasp this and realize just how out of out of normal or unnatural that normalization is it's not it, it, it nowhere in the history of the world of the human race it doesn't matter what culture it is it doesn't matter what continent it is nowhere is the normalization of single women that are barren and without children now i said normal it is true in ancient rome and italy like in the city of Pompeii, I mean, prostitution was an enslavery of, of, of little girls to ultimately turn into women who could be prostitutes. It is true that that did happen and that they considered that, 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 that perversion kind of a part of their society. That's different from normalizing that. Right. Exactly. Go ahead. That's different, though, isn't it? That's not normalizing it. That's taking a perversion, a sin, a vice, if you will, and basically making it industrial and then incorporating it into, into, into your society. Still, the normal people in, in, in Pompeian society would have been the ones who were birthing the girls. Right. And uh, a, a scholar that I've discovered um, in recent, about I discovered well last year and have started studying, Augustine Rusler. I almost certain none of your viewers have heard of him, or if they have, I'd love to hear from them. He um, died in 1922, was a Catholic priest, and he led the Catholic fight against feminism in the 19th and early 20th century. And he was also a great scholar. And something that I think you know, valuable to see looking back on his works, you know, 150 years ago is, you know, he wasn't a crazy, wild reactionary, you know, it was like lock all the women up at home. Mm -hmm. He noticed and observed that, yes, historically here and there, there have been women who weren't married. There have been cases of women um, being um, excelling in intellectual life. He mentioned St. Catherine of Siena, Hildegard of Bingen. And so he, he recognizes this capacity is present, but he's able to see it balanced within the natural motherhood of women. Um, and so he's not saying it's impossible, um, but what, so he recognizes it, but that's entirely different than a society saying that it should be the cultural norm for women to... Um, be basically career machines and live their lives alone. Now, God made it not only for himself, but also for each other. We're supposed to be in, in relationships and in contact with each other, not automatons alone in society. Yeah, right. Uh, and, and now, uh, 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 so we talked about gender ideology for just, uh, for just a moment now. Now let's talk about something else that feminism has created. And that is that now even men can become women, supposedly. So, 
men now competing in women's sports. I mean, this is taking the feminists lied. Either that, or they're just they were just imbeciles, and they got it wrong. Because you had you had this before feminism and before the revolution, and now you have this. Well, no, you really don't have that. Now you have this. No one knows. You can't even tell. So now you have men actually in, in invading women's sports, and then you have other men and some women cheering them on and saying, yeah, yeah, well, they have the right to do this. He's, he's just being all he can be. But no, he, he's naturally born male. This is, and, <laughs> go, go, go ahead. You also have girls and women who are who become radically alienated from themselves who, who are listening to the ideology around them and culture, and you have little girls teenage girls, young women, older women saying, oh, I'm really a man um, who, um, as I said, it's like they become unrooted into who they are, which I think is somewhat similar. Um, and I've, I've heard of psychiatrists make this comparison, for example, to anorexia, where an anorexia is most common in women, mm -hmm. um, where a person, usually a woman, becomes radically alienated from her own body and right. has just simply an entirely f false understanding of um, who she is. And it's um, dangerous and there's a great deal of suffering involved. This is not something to be cheered on. Let me ask you about J.K. Rowling. She's a woman, I think, uh, but I also would say that J.K. Rowling is a feminist. Uh, probably a very modern uh, feminist. As a matter of fact, to hear her talk, and I've seen interviews where I'd say she is a fire-breathing, she could be a member of what I call Gal-Qaeda. Um, uh, but she's been tempered by what happened to her. And now, now that they tried to cancel her, uh, she revolted. And she's one of the few that's actually survived and is living to tell the tale uh, of, of what these people are capable of doing. But if she's not J.K. Rowling, she is canceled. She is removed. She is excised from even the ability, uh, if she was out there on her alone and single and responsible for her own well-being, they would have removed from her, if it weren't that particular woman, they would have removed from her that ability. So J.K. Rowling, feminist, meet fake or or modern feminists and decide to oppose them and then what happens well you know and there are others like jk rowling who are now saying no we, we want to have the quote-unquote true feminism and we're going to oppose transgenderism but here's the danger and the problem with that is they're saying well we want to have 50 percent of the revolution but not 75 percent and revolutions don't work that way. It's like saying, well, I want to have a little bit of communism, but not complete communism. Or it's like <laughs> saying, well, I really like communism, but we haven't, just haven't tried true communism yet. If you go back to the moderate feminism, quote unquote, moderate feminism they want to have, it has built into it this constant demand for change, 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 change. And so you go right back to the same ideas that lead into opening the door to gender ideology. Is there a path to conservative or Catholic feminism? Or is there such a thing? And if there is, what is it? I would say no. And when I hear people use phrases like, well, I want to be a Catholic feminist or a conservative feminist, I think that one of two things are going on. First, maybe they really are um, a feminist in the ideological sense 
and for inexplicable reasons, they want to use the words conservative or um, Catholic. And so underneath it all, they're really promoting radical ideas. Alternatively, some of those who want to call themselves conservative feminists, Catholic feminists, they may actually have some sound ideas about woman, but what they're doing by using the term feminist attached to either conservative or Catholic is they are fostering confusion. I think it's unrealistic to expect an audience to hear a phrase like, oh, I wanna be a Catholic feminist or a conservative feminist or a moderate feminist and expect the audience to understand, oh, no, no, you mean something very nuanced and specific. For example, some will say, oh, no, no, that's not what I mean by feminism. Here, read my 300 page book. <laughs> understand this special niche of feminism I have. No, what's happening is the public hears the word feminism, here's an affirmation of feminism, and the effect of what they're doing is to affirm feminism with all of its problem. And look, Mike, in the Catholic tradition, we have so many tools available to look at, analyze, and identify responses to injustice in society. We have tools like philosophy, theology. We don't need the ideology of feminism. I, I don't know if you, uh, I'm just gonna take five, five more minutes of your time. Um, we use the term ideology a lot, kitties. Very few people understand what that means. When someone says ideology, the best definition I ever read of ideology was by a secular humanist uh, who just happened to be a libertarian. His name was Robert Higgs. He wrote a book called Crisis and Leviathan. And in the first chapter of Crisis and Leviathan, Higgs explained, he took like four pages to explain ideology. And I probably read this in 2008, 2009. I interviewed Robert Higgs a couple times back then on the SiriusXM Patriot channel. So if you get the book, it's out of print, but you can get a, a, a used copy. It, it's worthy for a couple of things because Higgs invents this thing called the ratchet effect, which has nothing to do with our discussion here. But it's basically... Government creates a problem, and then it appoints itself to solve it. And then uh, to solve it, it says, well, I need to be made bigger. So if you make me bigger, then I'll solve the problem. It never solves the problem, but it has ratcheted itself up. It made itself larger. Which All these ideologies seem to, or all these, uh, uh, the, these gender obsessions, I would call them. But ideology is something you don't want to mess with. And people think, well, what is your ideology? You really don't have to have an ideology, because an ideology is basically a commitment to view the world through a single set of lens. Yeah. Now, in philosophy, we call this uh, mono, um, oh, um, oh gosh, monism. You call this a mo Freud had an ideology, sex. He was a monist, meaning monoist, right? Am I right? You're a philosopher, is that correct? <laughs> I'm not a philosopher. Okay, all right, all right. <laughs> you're talking about something that can make sense. Okay, all right, but but it makes Freud saw the world through 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 his own mono view, his myopic mono view that everything had to do something to do with sex, right? So this is what happens when someone has an ideology. You must see everything through the lens of whatever you have made an ideal in your mind. If it's this thing called conservatism, well, then you're, then you're going to see, you're going to view everything through it. Instead of doing as our philosophy teachers, like Brother Francis say, what is truth? Truth is conformity of the mind to reality. 
you're a pretty good philosopher if you can repeat that. And if you can, re- <laughs> you can repeat that in life. So uh, uh, I just when you when you mention ideologies, be very careful in saying, "Well, my ideological." No, don't say that. You don't, you don't want to have an ideology, and if it is, your ideology is Catholic. It's universal. The church has the answer for everything. Doesn't matter what it is. The church has an answer for it. So I just wanted to get that. Do you want to comment on that? Um, I, I love that phrase: the conformity of life to reality. Truth is, the, is conformity of mind to reality. Yeah. And also that ratchet effect that you mentioned, I think we see that also with feminism. Feminism has come in and said, okay, well, there's a problem. Mm-hmm. As I said, there were, there were injustices and there are problems in society. But feminist says, well, there's a problem with women's status. The solution is feminism. So they've already proposed um, a false solution to a false definition right. of the problem. And then when they can't fix it at first, they say, oh, well, we just need more feminism and more feminism and more feminism. If you just give us more feminism, we'll get closer to a solution. And that's it's self-justified and it keeps ratcheting up. That, I, I think that that's correct. And it, it not only works in economics and in law, but it, it works in feminism and it works in other things. No, no, just give us more power and, and, and then we'll fix it. Okay. Final question for Jennifer Bryson. Now, this is the one that I told all the moms and dads to have their daughters tune in for. Okay. Okay. You have got an audience of 14 to 24-year-old girls. There's a 100 of them right behind me. And you've got, uh, you can do a monologue for however many minutes you wish. What would you advise them to learn what would you advise them to um, to aspire to as a as a vocation, and what other general advice would, based on your life experience, you're in your fifties now, uh, your life experience and what has happened to you, um, and the things that you discovered in life? What you could go back in the time. What do you want that teacher to tell you? That the definition of being a woman is not being a CEO, um, that God loves women so much that he's created about half of the human population as them. And so we should delight in that and um, embrace that. And that a reality that our government school system never wants to talk about with girls and young women is that the female body is designed to be fruitful. And um, that to marry, have children is a great and wonderful thing in life. Um, And that they should think about this now when they're in their late teens, early 20s, and not think, well, now I have to pursue my career. I'll get to that in five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. Um, early in life is the time to explore those questions. Uh, we, we enjoy now through modern medicine, for example, um, longer life expectancy. For those who want to do additional studies, it's possible for women, for example, to do that later in life. And also the ideals of career that are pushed on girls and young women are always these ideals of a woman who's maybe in her 30s, around 40, you know, who's rising in her career. Girls and young women need to think about their life when they're 50, 60, 65, 70, and envision 
what kind of life would I like to have then? Will it involve love, friendships, relationships? The time to begin building those love, friendships, and relationships is early in life. And for young women whom God may be calling to religious life, this all takes active exploration. We can't just sit at home expecting the solution to show up on our doorstep because our society's fabric of society that used to channel young men and women into relationships, into religious life, those channels of communication are broken. So it requires being active and intentional at a younger age. Intentional in being open to letting others know one would like to meet a young man to marry. Move to a place where one is likely to meet, for example, for young Catholics, move to a place where one is likely to meet good Catholic young men um, and pursue this and be open to this early. The doors in life will begin closing as the years go by. That's simply the reality of how we're made. So seize the opportunities early. And the career advice that I have is that career is not the most important thing in life. That's a very good answer. You know, a couple of uh, examples of this come to mind immediately to me. Alice von Hildebrandt yes. and Phyllis Schlafly. You know, Phyllis mm-hmm. Schlafly oh, yes. became one of the most the loudest feminist voices for real feminism. Um, well, and- I'd say she was an anti-feminist. I think she was. Um, I met Phyllis. I met her before she died. I met her at some, somewhere at a, at, a, at a convention. Wonderful lady. Um, Phyllis Schlafly founded the Eagle Forum. And yeah. this is after she had had eight children that she homeschooled primarily. And Phyllis Schlafly rallied women and men to the ramparts in 1976 and all the way up until around 1980 or so to defeat this thing, this abomination called the Equal Rights Amendment. And, yeah. and and they, and if you any decent historian that knows anything about that at epic in time that amendment that amendment is still laying there it could be ratified I don't think it ever will, but it was defeated because of the Eagle Forum and because of and because of Catholic conservative and Christian there were, there were evangelicals in that very conservative motherly women that said no uh-uh, that is not what a woman is and I no this must not be made law and it wasn't. So a great example uh, of that, again, is Phyllis Schlafly. So uh, if, if you're uh, young ladies or, or moms and dads, if you're looking for an example, I think she wrote a book or two, uh, Phyllis, yes. uh, Phyllis Schlafly. Um, she just, but, but she did this late in life. She was in her 60s when she began campaigning against the Equal Rights Amendments or, or, or late 50s. All right, Jennifer, if people want to contact you, what should they do? Uh, my website is jenniferbryson.net. For those who may be listening, not watching, Bryson is spelled B-R-Y-S-O-N. Um, and there's a contact button there. Okay. Well, God bless you, uh, Mary. Keep you in your work and your studies. Any plans to come back to the uh, United States any, anytime soon? I will probably move back in 2024, 2025. Um, and right now I'm looking for... Um, for where to move and looking at locations where the traditional Latin mass is celebrated, trying to decide. So you kind of are looking for a man, kind of <laughs> the man. <laughs> if um, Prince Charming were to show up on my doorstep. Um, but Jesus will work for now. 
<laughs> yes. God wants me to do something. I'm still here. So, you know, I'm, I'm asking God, okay, how can I love and serve you? And, and by the way, I, I'm always inspired when I talk to Jennifer because this is this is a woman here, my friend here, who just accepted it. Okay, look, yeah, you, I trusted him. I screwed up. So I'm just going to trust God from now. And ask him what he wants me to do, and he led you to Austria. So, I mean, this is where this is where you ultimately want, uh, wind up. You know, I think, folks, really, if you ask the question every day um, uh, and, and ask it sincerely, seek ye first the kingdom of God and His justice, and all this will be added unto you. And just go, God, what do you want me to do? Just tell me, and I'll do it. Yeah, I'm I'm listening, um, but so far a lightning bolt hasn't hit hit me. So I need to just keep day by day praying and discerning. Um, okay. And in the meantime, I'm I'm spending my time translating the works of an author named Ida Friederike Gures. Yeah, I just read about uh, that in your interview. You can also read Jennifer's interview at the European Conservative. That's europeanconservative.com. All right, Jennifer, God bless you. We'll talk soon and keep up the uh, the great work and keep the faith. Thank you. Keep up the good work, Mike. All right, thank you.